0: Let's pray the Lord be with you. And also. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, would you clarify your truth in our heart? When things are sort of obscure or we're seeing as through a glass dimly, Lord, would you make them clear by your word and by your Holy Spirit? In this time, Lord, especially we pray that walking away from today, we would feel that you have made your gospel crystal clear to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Incarnation. Good morning, Mark. I wanted to ask you this morning, have you ever had the experience um, where you're watching one of your favorite movies with a friend, and they haven't seen it yet, so you're really excited to share this experience with them? And so you're watching it with them, and you're looking at their reaction at a bunch of your favorite parts, and then at some point in the movie, you look at their reaction at one of your favorite parts, and they're sleeping? (laughs) Have any of you guys ever had that experience? I, I, I think I have more than once, actually. I, um, it's, not, it's not very fun, right? You, you're like, hey, no, no, you missed it. And then sometimes they'll try to like play it off at the end, like, yeah, man, that was good. And you're like, uh-uh, dude, you fell asleep. And, uh, and while there are some movies uh, that are probably on the sort of like, level where like, you, could, you could take a nap for 15 minutes in the middle and you're not really going to miss much... There are some movies where that will actually make a big difference. Amen? Amen. Um, some of you might know that my favorite movie ever is uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. It's the first movie of The Lord of the Rings. And if you've ever invested the three or four hours that it takes to watch this movie, you'll know that right about like halfway in the movie, there's this really important scene called, called The Council of Elrond. Elrond is this sort of leading elf. And uh, the scene is a bit long and a bit boring, just a bunch of dwarves and elves and hobbits sitting around discussing what to do with the Ring of Power. Um, In fact, the director, Peter Jackson, uh, said that this was the most difficult scene for him to direct because he's like, it's just a lot of dialogue and there's a high potential for people to get boring, to get bored, excuse me, but if they get bored and they miss what's going on here, they're going to be lost for the rest of the movie. And so he said, we have to make sure that we do this well. And, um, and, and it's true. I mean, if you fell asleep during the 15 minutes um, where the Council of Elrond happens, um, you're going to um, you know, miss the formation of the Fellowship of the Ring, the introduction of several new characters, and pretty much the central plot for the next two and a half movies. <laughs> and I, I think Acts 15 is actually a little bit like that. It involves a council and a cast of characters, and a lot of talking. And uh, I think at times it actually feels a bit tedious. But we have to, um, we have to recognize, um, through reading of the, the, the total book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, that it's actually crucial to the story. In fact, all of the book of Acts has in some way or another been building up to Acts 15. One Bible scholar put it this way. He said, chapter 15 is the turning point The centerpiece, the watershed of the book. The episode which rounds off and justifies the past developments and makes those to come intrinsically possible. And I don't think this is an exaggeration. Because after Acts 15, Peter disappears from the story, Jerusalem fades into the background, and Paul really sets his sight on Rome in the future, and the mission begins to move in that direction. And none of this really could be possible without what's established in Acts 15. So will you grab your Bibles and please turn to Acts 15. And as you turn there, um, let me just say a few words about the context. Um, At the end of chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas had just completed their first missionary journey. And they're lingering with the church in Antioch, which was their sending church. And um, sharing with them, quote, all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith. Can you say faith? faith? Faith. All right. That's a key word here. They opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So God had received the Gentiles, Romans and Syrians and other non-Jews, by faith, even though they weren't circumcised. Now that brings us to our passage today in chapter 15, because it says in verse 1, But some men came down from Judea, actually, technically speaking, they came up, because they were south, 300 miles And they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So we know you've heard the preaching of the gospel. We know you believe in Jesus. We know that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, or maybe you think you have been. But unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now we learn later on in verse 5 that this group belonged to the party of the Pharisees. And this is the same pressure group that Paul is dealing with throughout his epistle to the Galatians. Sometimes Bible interpreters interpreters refer to this group as Judaizers, but I think it might actually be more helpful to call them Messianic Circumcisers. Because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, uh, but they also believed that circumcision, circumcision was necessary both to Jew and Gentile alike in order for them to be saved. And actually, they were focused on more than circumcision, we learn, because for them, circumcision was just symbolic of embracing the whole yoke, the whole law of Moses. Um, That's why later on in verse 5, members of the same group say, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. That's what they say about the Gentiles. It's necessary. So this would include things like, keeping the Jewish calendar, kosher foods, ritual cleansing, all these kinds of things. In other words, they believed at this critical early juncture in Christian history, they believed that you had to become Jewish in order to become Christian. So the gospel they preached, which was really no gospel at all, was like a faith plus message, right? Faith plus circumcision. Faith plus works of the law. And what made things even more confusing is that they were coming from the area near Jerusalem. And this is where the Jesus movement first started. And now we do learn later on in verse 24 of this passage that these men were not actually sent by James or Peter. They were sort of self-appointed guardians of orthodoxy. Um, I think those kinds of people still exist on Facebook and YouTube. Lots of self-appointed guardians of orthodoxy out there. (coughs) They didn't speak for the church in Jerusalem, but the church in Antioch didn't know that. So some of the more insecure Gentile believers might have been thinking, wow, maybe these guys are right. Maybe we're not saved. And we actually learn in the book of Galatians that this pressure group, that the pressure was so strong that at one point Peter even begins to kind of retract his presence from table fellowship with the Gentiles, which he had been enjoying before. And Paul has to confront him and say, look, Uh, When these these Jewish brothers are around, you no longer want to eat with the Gentiles, but they're just as much your brothers as these Gentiles. And so what you're doing is contrary to the gospel. And Peter actually has to repent. It's like the most sort of tense apostolic argument that we get in the whole New Testament. Uh, And Peter has to repent. And so, so yeah, they're they're really disturbing people. They're they're really um, making insecure Gentile believers, and even Jewish believers like Peter, like, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm caught in this tension between like this old covenant pattern that I've been raised in and I know and I've known my whole life and it's sort of in the fiber of my bones. But then there's this new covenant gospel that I know I believe and it just feels really difficult at this moment. It'd be sort of like changing the weekend in, in the United States to like Wednesday and Thursday or something like that. I mean, this is just, it was a massive, not just religious, but cultural shift for the Jews to kind of say, I'm allowed to eat with these former pagans that are not circumcised? I, we weren't allowed to do this before. Okay, but God has received them through the gospel of Jesus. All right, I'm trying to work this out, guys. Right? So um, Antio- so, 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 Paul and Barnabas, um, they're, they're not having it. It says in <laughs> verse 2, af- and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I love that understatement. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the, up to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas, a few other reliable men to Jerusalem to get to the bottom of this. And this sets the stage for the council of Elrond. I mean, the Jerusalem council. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Verse 6 says. Syncretism. Yes, yeah, syncretism. That's right. <laughs> the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after some debate took place, in fact, verse 7 says much debate, there are three different men who each speak in turn. They were all apostles. All of them had great authority in the early church. And we might actually call them the big three of the early church. Peter, Paul, and James, the big three. Now, um, if you're a fan of the Miami Heat, then the big three might mean something different for you. Um, this was the phrase that was used to describe um, when when Dwayne Wade and LeBron James and Chris Bosh all formed a super team and won two NBA championships together. And as I'm, I'm looking out in the sea of, of this congregation, I'm realizing there's not many NBA basketball fans here. <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> but just for fun... I want to relate these three apostles to the big three NBA All-Stars. And if you're not an NBA basketball fan, you're just going to have to deal with this. And let me throw a nice little cookie to those who are, right? So the first guy we're going to hear from is Peter, who walked with Jesus for three years. He became the leading spokesman of the original 12 apostles. So he was the leader of the original apostolic team, so to speak, before it even got famous. And in this way, he reminds me of Dwayne Wade Because Dwayne Wade was already a legend in Miami He was already a champion Even before LeBron and Bosch got there Now the second person we hear, about, uh, we hear from is, is Paul Actually, it's Barnabas and Paul um, who They were leading the, the missionary, uh, the missionary uh, ventures to the Gentiles Paul was appointed as an apostle later on Through a direct encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Now to me... Paul is something like the LeBron James of the team. He was probably the most gifted of the three, and also the most likely to rub other people the wrong way. So, like LeBron, the Apostle Paul was a latecomer to the team, and he came from out of town in Tarsus, but he took his talents down to Jerusalem. And if you got that joke, you can be my friend. The third person we'll hear from is James. James. The half-brother of Jesus. He's the author of the book of James in the New Testament, and he was given the nickname James the Just. Now, this James is not to be confused with James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, who was actually martyred, if you remember, back in Acts chapter 12. As best we can tell, James, Jesus' half-brother, didn't actually follow Jesus as a disciple until he saw him risen from the dead. Then he was like, okay, that's a game changer. (laughs) Um, But he actually became a really important leader in the early church. In fact, he was the first bishop of Jerusalem. Um, But James the Just, he kind of reminds me of Chris Bosh, because he's the one who sticks around in Jerusalem after the other two leave on their missionary journeys, just like Chris Bosh stuck with the Miami Heat after LeBron and James Wade signed elsewhere, just to finish the analogy there. (laughs) So now all joking aside, I think it's actually helpful to view Peter and Paul and James as being on the same team because sometimes critical scholars want to pit them like against one another as if there's just this sort of spectrum and it's like way on the one side is James who's the most Jewish uh, of them and and he's he's sort of passionate about Jewish things And, and then on the other side you have like the Apostle Paul who's been a missionary for so long and he's you know, been eating, like, barbecued pulled pork with all the Gentiles and, and, you know, and shrimp and stuff like that. And somewhere in between, you have Peter, who's sort of tugged back and forth between the two. And to some extent, that's, like, partially true, right? But it doesn't really tell the whole story, because Paul himself, he called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He loved his own people. Paul, in all his missionary journeys, always went to... Um, preach in the synagogues first before bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And, and likewise, James is not in, unsympathetic to the Gentiles. He might be, in some sense, like a pastor or a missionary in residence in Jerusalem among people who are really zealous about the law, and so James is trying to be sensitive to them. But did you notice he's the one who, who ultimately decides, he's the one who ultimately decrees, really, in this passage that the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. So he's not unsympathetic to them as a people group. Uh, So the book of Acts and Luke really wants us to know that Peter and Paul and James were actually brothers. They were actually partners. They were teammates. They weren't sort of um, leaders of their own, you know, Jesus movements that were in complete contradiction to, to one another. And if there were any sort of outstanding questions about like, hey, how are we viewing this? There are actually several points along the way and the most important being here in Acts 15 where they're like, hey, let's like totally make sure we're on the same page and tell all the churches we're on the same page. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, so whether it was I or they who preached to you, he's talking about Cephas, he's talking about Peter, he's talking about James, whether it was I or they who preached, so we preached and so you believed. It it doesn't matter whether you got the gospel from James or Peter or me because we only preach one gospel because there is only one gospel. So look with me, if you would, at Peter's speech. It's a bit wordy, but I find he makes every sentence count. So we're going to linger on his speech a little bit more than elsewhere in this passage. Beginning in verse 7, it says, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth um, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So actually, if we remember... (laughs) Paul is the, I mean, uh, excuse me, Peter is the, is the first one who actually leads an uncircumcised Gentile to faith in the book of Acts. And we Remember that from Acts chapter 10 uh, in the conversion of Cornelius. He said, he, Peter calls this the early days. So we're in Acts 15, that was in Acts 10. Most scholars believe this, this was about 10 years before, that the conversion of Cornelius happened about A.D. 38. And that the Jerusalem Council is happening in about A.D. 48. So Peter goes on to say, Uh, And God who knows the heart, and that's an important phrase because God can tell whether somebody is is his child, whether they're circumcised or not. Amen? Amen, Amen. God can see our hearts. He knows whether we believe in him. He knows whether they're redeemed. He knows whether he's given you his spirit that you might be born again into his family. Right. God knows he can see the heart. And he says that God bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Remember when when Cornelius and his family and friends believe the gospel that Peter is preaching? They're not even baptized yet. You know, they're, they're they're certainly not circumcised. They just believe and the Holy Spirit falls on them just like the Holy Spirit fell on the Jews at Pentecost. And these Jews from all these different nations and they began speaking in tongues. Nobody told them to do that. It was an ecstatic experience that they never had. And God was trying to show Peter... I've accepted them the same way that I've accepted you, by faith, by faith, right? So he wanted, he wanted that to be ingrained in Peter's, in, in Peter's mind. I, I love the King James Version when it talks uh, about uh, Acts chapter 10. It says, Peter realized that God is no respecter of persons, right? That God, that he doesn't care if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Anybody who has faith in the gospel, God will bring into his family, Amen? Amen. So, um, now we notice that Peter actually uses a lot of us and them language in this paragraph, but he does so in order to actually make kind of an opposite point here in verse 9. It says that God made no distinction between us and them. So no distinction between Jew and Gentile, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So, again, here Peter identifies the key ingredient. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, it's not circumcision that cleanses a man's heart in the new covenant. It's not circumcision by which the blood of Jesus covers our sins. What is it? It's faith. And in stating this, really, Peter is, is just following the teachings of his master, Jesus. Now, maybe Jesus never specified exactly what to do about circumcision. I actually tend to think he didn't clarify that, um, and that was something that he allowed to be clarified in this sort of apostolic age, that this was actually an important, uh, this was something important that he wanted his Holy Spirit to be leading his church in. Um, But in our Gospel reading today, Jesus, if you remember, he marvels at the faith of this Roman centurion, this Roman soldier. He says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith is the centrality of faith in Jesus' healing miracles. This word, you know, uh, by faith you're healed, uh, is is often the same Greek word as by faith you're saved. It's the same word. And so these healing miracles are in some some ways a parable of God's salvation. And Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So they're going to come from all over the place. You guys are going to be kind of overwhelmed by this. Jesus is trying to let his disciples know, get ready, right? It's just like John the Baptist said, don't just say to yourself, like, we're good because we have Abraham as our father. Because John the Baptist said, I tell you, Mm. God can cause sons (laughs) of Abraham to rise from this tree or rise from this stump or something like that. Mm. I'll look at that scripture reference later, but it's something like that. (laughs) Stump. 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 Yeah, 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 to rise from these stones. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Back to the plan. (laughs) So, um, in other words, uh, the Jews, the Greeks, as well as Paul will clarify, male and female, slave and free, all who have faith in Jesus will be a part of the one eternal family of God. This doctrine is what the Reformers referred to as sola fide that we're saved by faith alone. This is a firm biblical truth, guys. Sometimes this part of Christianity is actually criticized. I've heard churches refer to this doctrine critically as easy believism. And their point is that faith that does not lead to obedience is not true faith. So to quote from James, faith without works is dead. And that's true enough. But on the other hand, it's important to note that faith is still all that's needed Because true faith will always lead to amendment of life. An amendment of life will never be possible without the starting point of faith. So in other words, we're not saved by both faith and works as a sort of like combo deal. We're saved by faith alone, and then true faith always leads to loving works. I have a friend who um, is a gifted evangelist who loves to use this phrase, easy believism. He told me, yeah, man, I... It's supposed to be a criticism, but I love it. He said, because when I share Christ with people, I tell them, all you need to do is believe in Jesus and you will be saved. And he said, and I like to tell them when they say it, like, that's crazy, that sounds too easy. He says, well, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. This is the free gift of salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. The hymn we sometimes sing in church puts it this way, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. I love that line. I always want to like stop in the middle of it and just say, hallelujah. Even in the middle of Lent, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now look, look down with me at verse 10, because Peter's teaching here, it's at the core of our faith. He asks, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? God's already revealed all this to us. Why are you putting him to test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, he's saying like, look, not even, not even the Jewish heroes of the past were able to be saved by obeying the law. So why are you telling them that that's the way that they need to be saved? He says, but we, that is we Jews, believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So let's just do a full stop for a minute, right? Peter is saying that both Jews and Gentiles alike are saved in the same way. And how does God save us? By works of the law? No, he says we'll be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. Probably don't need to tell you that what grace means, grace refers to God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve it, but He gives it. He graciously gives it. It's a divine rescuing love that comes to us from the outside, even though we don't deserve it, because God is more merciful than each one of us could possibly fathom. Grace is the sinless Son of God dying on the cross for the sins of the world. And listen, brothers and sisters, there's no other hope For salvation, except for by the grace of God and the cross of Christ, I was watching a video, one of the last interviews that Billy Graham gave before he died, and he was saying, um, and they were showing these images of him preaching in front of yes, like two hundred thousand people or something. It was just massive groups gathering, and he said, um, I always got so excited when I was standing in front of the, the, the these groups of people because I was just standing up there thinking, man, God loves you all so much. Is that like a beautiful thought? You know, you know, Billy Graham wasn't rolling up to the podium like, look at all you sinners. <laughs> no, Billy Graham, because he's like, my, my central message was God so loved the world. He so loved you that he gave his only son. And if you believe in Jesus, he'll forgive your sins. He'll transform your life. He'll come to live inside you. I so long to tell you this, that you might be saved, that you might believe, that you might receive that free gift. So let's take a quick poll to test our understanding. How many of you here have some sort of Jewish ancestry, or you are a Gentile? (laughs) Okay, that should be everyone, right? Now keep your hands raised if you think you'll be saved because of your obedience to the law. Okay, no one, good. You're listening to Peter here. Now raise your hand if you believe the only way to be saved is by the grace of God. All right, awesome, we're getting somewhere. And it's because of passages like this and hundreds of others like it that the Protestant reformers insisted that we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That was their clarion call, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In fact, I want to read for you Martin Luther's discovery of this truth in Scripture back when he was an Augustinian monk. Um, In his own words, he says this. He says, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean the justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was such that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. See, he didn't love God because he didn't have faith. But he goes on to say, Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is the righteousness by which through grace we sin- uh, grace and sincere mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. Hallelujah. He says, the whole of scripture took on a new meaning. Whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. So again, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is such a core doctrine that the Anglican theologian J.I. Packer said, a church that lapses from justification by faith can scarcely be called Christian at all. And Acts fifteen is the story of the early church getting this doctrine straight once and for all. And after the Jeru- after the Jerusalem Council, if anyone tried to preach a gospel besides this, a faith plus gospel, which is really no gospel at all, then they had no part with the apostles. If they said, "Hey, we're like we're good with you guys on like most of what you're saying, but we just don't agree that we're saved by the grace of God apart from works of the law," like. We believe Jesus is the Messiah, we will kind of behave ourselves in a similar manner to you guys, but we're just not on the same page with you. What do you guys think about that? Well, I mean, I actually, actually, I hope the apostles would first say, well, let me make sure that you understand what we're saying, and let's reason with each other from the scriptures. <coughs> but if at the end of the day, the other people dug their heels in, they would say, okay, well, um, we're, we're, just, we're not a part of the same church, because we don't have the same gospel, the apostles could as we see be very flexible with certain, as as we'll see be very flexible with certain things but to mess with this message was to mess with the means of salvation now i'm going to summarize the rest of this passage um, rather quickly the next thing that happens in verse 12 is that paul and barnabas are given the opportunity to share their testimony about quote the signs and wonders god had done through them Among the Gentiles. And this was important for the council to hear because God is um, not likely to give his miraculous power to a mission that's contrary to his will. And that's sort of their point. So, for this reason, personal testimony can be a very powerful thing. But after Paul's done sharing, James actually does something that I think is even more important, which is he points the council back to the scriptures. He says in verse thirteen, "Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, and it's very like James to use Peter's Jewish name here. He says Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. And here's the important part. He says, and with this, uh, and, and excuse me, and with this, uh, the words of the excuse me, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. And then he quotes from Amos chapter nine and makes an allusion to Isaiah forty-five, with which demonstrates." That during the time of the Messiah, when the tent of David is restored, God planned to include Gentiles into the remnant of his people. So it's just a couple of verses, and who knows what other verses they also talked about. I can think of others from the Old Testament. Commenting on James' speech, John Stott writes this. He says, The inclusion of the Gentiles was not a divine afterthought, but was foretold by the prophets. Scripture itself confirmed the facts of the missionaries' experience. This correspondence between Scripture and experience between the witness of the prophets and the apostles was, for James, conclusive. The point is is that experience alone, even powerful personal experience, is not enough when it comes to establishing doctrine in the church. So if it, it really was true, it had to be proved by the Word of God. This is this is the doctrine that the reformers referred to as sola scriptura, scripture alone. Their point was that even an official church council was not free to decide on a matter unless it was backed by holy scripture. The second thing that James does here is to request for his Gentile brothers to just use a little bit of tact when they're operating in the mission around people who are very sensitive to to, um, Old Covenant scruples. So, Here, verse 21, he says, For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And here, James is just promoting a missionary principle that Paul taught in most of his letters. So if people are sensitive to kosher food, even if you believe there's nothing objectively wrong with eating the food, you should show them love by refraining from eating it. If head coverings are a sign of modesty in a culture, um, then Christian missionaries are called to respect that culture by respecting their norms. These principles are still important for believers today. Uh, For example, many churches in the South um, have really, really um, stringent rules against the use of alcohol in any form. And this is just very common. It's common because of, you know, their experience, you know, alcoholism. It's common because there are warnings against alcohol use in scripture and they're sort of highlighting that. And it's common, I think, because of some misunderstandings in their readings of scripture. Ultimately, I I don't think that they're right in their reading of scripture. But at the same time, it wouldn't be very loving of me to sort of (laughs) flaunt what I believe is like my Christian scriptural freedom to enjoy a glass of wine or a beer in front of them and just like, by that means like sort of cause some sort of division or cause them to stumble or cause their conscience to be like, you know, peaked in such a way that they're feeling divided with me. If you have any questions about these things, I I recommend reading Romans 14 and 15. But essentially the message is this, showing love is more important than exercising freedom for Christians. Paul says, for if a brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do you not destroy the one for whom Christ died? So there's a difference for the apostles between the things that were essential. You cannot disagree with us on these things. And the things that they're like, you know, these are secondary matters. And I'm not going to put a stumbling block in front of somebody as a result of these things. So there are some things worth dividing over. And the last beer is not one of them. A false gospel that requires circumcision? Yes. Yes. But not beer and wine. And as a side note, I should say that food is always a secondary matter in the New Testament, but sexual purity, which is also mentioned by the apostles here, um, uh, was always viewed as essential throughout the rest of the New Testament. So this was actually um, viewed as a moral requirement, not a ritual requirement, that continued to um, be incumbent upon Christians as well as Jews. Uh, and so after the Jerusalem Council makes their decision, based on both Scripture and experience, they spread it abroad to all the Gentile churches by putting it in writing. And this principle of loving flexibility is actually confirmed through an ironic epilogue in this story, because Paul, who is the most passionate um, right, about not requiring circumcision, decides in the very next chapter, just a few verses later, to circumcise one of his missionary companions. Science. Right, it says in Acts sixteen three, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took with he took <coughs> him with him, and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For then he, they knew that his father was Greek. So Timothy was widely known. They knew that he was half Jewish, and he knew hey, if we're going to be doing uh, ministry, if we're going to start by entering the synagogues and debating all these things. I'm concerned for Timothy's safety if we don't actually circumcise him. I mean, Paul's already been stoned. He's already got people going out for his neck and he's just like, all right, we'll just, we'll just circumcise him, it's fine. Right? Which is, which is astounding, right? That Paul would be that flexible. So for those who are under the law, Paul was prepared to become like one under the law, he says, in order to win those who were under the law. As John Newton put it, Paul was a reed, in non-essentials, and an iron pillar in essentials. He was a reed in non-essentials, and an iron iron pillar in essentials. And so as I end, let me just take us back to the beginning for a moment. I started by pointing uh, out the important truth that if you're watching Lord of the Rings, don't fall asleep during the Council of Elrond, because you'll miss a lot of essential things going forward. And in a similar way, um, with the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, you you better pay attention to what's going on here. Otherwise, you're very likely going to misunderstand not only the rest of the book of Acts, but the rest of the New Testament. So we have to get the truth that they get clear here, clear. That God is is making a people for himself, from the East, from the West, people who are circumcised, people who are uncircumcised, and he's, he's calling a people for his own that that will come to know him, that will come to be a part of his people by faith. We gotta get the gospel clear that we're not saved by faith plus, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And yes, this is a truth worth dividing over. They sent the letter out. If you're not on the same page with us on this, then it's time to part ways. But on secondary matters, we're called to exercise loving unity over freedom. John Stott summarizes it in this way. The Jerusalem Council secured a double victory. A victory of truth in confirming the gospel of grace and a victory in love in in preserving the fellowship. Lord Jesus, we ask you to help us walk in both these truths. Amen. Amen.